And welcome back. Almost a century and a half ago, St. Louis was on the verge of becoming one of, if not the most important city in the country, largely because of the construction of the Eads Bridge. It would bring rail and other traffic from the east to St. Louis and beyond. The bridge serves as the backstory to St. Louis novelist Ken McGee's latest book, The Great Hope of the World. It gives us a glimpse of 19th century St. Louis through the eyes of two Irish immigrants. Novelist Ken McGee joins me in studio. Ken, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I love the book. Thank you. <laughs> I spent the weekend reading it and enjoyed every minute of it. Nice, nice job. Thank you. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I mentioned in the introduction that uh, the Eads Bridge was kind of the, kind of a, a backstory, And it's an interesting technique as a writer. How did you come to the idea of using that as such a significant part of the story? Well, I, I read a, an article about the Eads Bridge, and uh, when you look at some of the things that were going on in St. Louis at the time, it was just amazing that St. Louis is almost like a character in the book, that it felt that it was going to be the center of the universe. There was just a sense that St. Louis would be not just in competition with Chicago for the great city in the Midwest, but for the greatest city in the country and maybe the world. That's how they felt at that time because of St. Louis was always the easternmost western city and the westernmost eastern city. Mm -hmm. uh, to wit, the title of the book, The Great Hope of the World. That was right. St. Louis. And they, they felt that way. You know, St. Louis had the two great universities, Washington University and St. Louis University, already. They gave them the contact to Europe, European values. But they also had such a Western idea of let's do something different. When they built the Eads Bridge, it was the longest arch bridge in the world. And people said you couldn't build it. And it was also the first structure to use steel, steel having just been invented a few years earlier. And to do it, they hired uh, James Eads, who had no degree in engineering mm -hmm. or anything. He was a a guy who knew how to build things. So they just gave him a chance, and it, it worked out. It's still there. <laughs> it sure is. The, the, one of the things that uh, I didn't know, perhaps should have, but didn't know, was the manner in which the, uh, the bridge construction was funded. You know, I, I never thought about it, but uh, it was kind, of, kind of private funds, apparently. Right. They had to, to fund it privately, and, and that was one of their problems, is they, they never quite had enough money uh, to make it work in in this, they they were smart about doing that, but not as smart at the financial aspects of it, of how the bridge was actually going to make money once <laughs> they had it built. And yet uh, they anticipated that it would make money because your characters were, in, some of them were investors in the oh, bridge yes. and thought they were going to become very, very wealthy. How, how would that have happened? Well, it, it would have happened. St. Louis could have been what Chicago became, the railhead where all the the economy from the West moving East and vice versa would go through St. Louis mm -hmm. at that time. And once they had the bridge, see, before they had the bridge, rail stopped in East St. Louis and they had to put everything on barges mm -hmm. and send it across, which was not particularly efficient. So once they had the Eads Bridge, they felt that we would become the greatest. How would an investor make money? Well, just, just because the bridge was, was going to be such a lucrative investment, people would, the railroads would have to pay to use the bridge. Well, everybody had to pay, but mm -hmm. the railroads would have to pay massively to use the bridge. And that, that's how they thought they were going to make millions. 
Did people, in fact, make millions as a result of the bridge? No. (laughs) It was, unfortunately, it was a financial disaster. Within two years, um, Chicago interests, that's a sad word, Chicago (laughs) interests took over the bridge. It it went bankrupt. I'll be darned. And then ultimately, of course, uh, 25, 30 years later, Chicago became the Right. Chicago became the railhead and the stockyards and all that. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you've uh, been a student of history and coming up with uh, much of what you have in the book here. Are you using any poetic license here? Or is, I'll mention some of the specific incidents. Or, or are you relating things that actually happened? Well, there's poetic license because these particular characters did not exist. Sure. But many of the characters, for example, there's a brief uh, Virginia Minor is in the book. And she was the woman who sued the government to be able to vote. In, in 1872, she went to vote for president and was not allowed. And because of the 15th Amendment, she said, well, it says every citizen mm-hmm. should be allowed to vote. And they said, well, we certainly didn't mean women. And, and yeah. so she took that to the Supreme Court and, of course, lost. But she was a real person at that time from St. Louis. That was a big part of your plot, too. I mean, the, the suffragette character, for instance, and, right. and this, the great stirrings within many of the women in the book that, uh, uh, you know, longing for independence and, and what women are still in many cases fighting for today. Right. And, and uh, especially the, the, the woman, Clara Hawkins, who is fictional, but she was a young woman who felt that it was imminent, that she would get the vote in the next the next presidential election in 76. She felt that she was going to get it, and she might not have lived to see it because it was still 50 years away. Um, This is your second book. 1858 was your first book. It involves some of the characters. I've not read that, but I understand some of the characters here. There were some loose ends at the end of this book. (laughs) Is a third one going to come out of it? I don't know. It depends. It depends (laughs) on how how this goes, how how this particular interview goes, I suppose. (laughs) Well, I, I, I hope it's not dependent no, 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 no. totally totally on that. Let me ask you a couple of specific questions about things that uh, that uh, were in the book. We talked about uh, you know the funding and the need uh, to to um, have the finances to make the, the bridge work and a complete construction. I guess Andrew Carnegie was a big part of this because he was supplying steel from Pennsylvania for the right. bridge, correct? And again, we want don't want to give too much away, but that was an issue. He wanted he wanted payment for some for well, some of his steel. Part of the problem is again, as I mentioned, steel had never really been used in a in a large amount, and Eads had very specific uh, qualifications for the steel that he wanted. Um, and it had never been done. So the Carnegie people did like a cost-plus contract where they said, well, we'll look at this, but it's really more expensive. And they kept raising the price of the steel. And they even they had problems delivering the quality even with the raised price. And, and so the, they held out for more money even at the very end of the bridge. Well, one of the scenes related to this in the book was a, a – a knockdown, drag-out fight amongst the Carnegie people yeah. and uh, some of the people who were building the bridge at the time. Was that a real incident? That actually happened. That yeah. actually happened. Well, well, tell us a little bit more in detail. Well, about the, that. The, at, right at the end, the bridge was almost complete. They were just finishing the roadway on the bridge. And the Carnegie people said, you can't open the bridge unless you give us this specific amount of money, which they didn't have. 
And so they went there, got the St. Louis police and all that to, to throw those guys off. And a huge Donnybrook broke yeah. out. And uh, luckily it was stopped by, by a, a rainstorm that sort of uh, calmed the spirits. And they, they finally had to come up with the money. So it's an actual incident, and right. as the end, it's, a, right. it's, it's it one, of, one of the key elements in the book. Another one that uh, that I had not been aware of was when the bridge was finally opened, 1874, right? Right. When the bridge was finally opened, um, one of your char- uh, characters rides an elephant across the bridge, uh, presumably to show everyone that it was safe <laughs> and would hold a, 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 a heavy load. That, that happened? actually happened. Now, the the uh, the license that I took is someone led that elephant across the bridge. It didn't say whether there was anybody on it or not, and I put somebody on it. But but yes, that actually there was some myth that an elephant was had some innate sense that if the bridge wasn't safe, he wouldn't go across it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, and people believe that enough, and the Eads folks said, well, we'll take an elephant across to. to Show everybody. I think in reading your book, people will not look at the Eads Bridge the same way, perhaps, as they have. I'm just looking for something else here, here in my notes. It was the name of, oh, yeah, here it is, um, Wildcat Shoot, which, yes, was a, right. which was a body district, I guess. And maybe that's, maybe that's too strong. Maybe not. But that's, that's the impression. No, that that's I got. not too strong. <laughs> Tell me about Wildcat Shoot. Well, St. Louis, I mean, one of the other things that happened at that time that I was not aware of until I started doing the uh, research was that St. Louis, in at the end of the 60s, legalized prostitution in the city. And they had a problem, and they felt that the best way to deal with disease, et cetera, was to legalize it and have doctors do inspections and and to tax it so they could have a separate hospital for— It's pretty progressive, actually, it, for the day. And they copied the law from Paris. Mm. They, they yeah. basically copied the law that the Parisians had already set up and felt that they were so progressive in that. And, and that was a separate part of St. Louis uh, where, where it was completely legal for about six years. Where was it? It was uh, sort of down— um, in the in the uh, by the uh, Poplar Street where Poplar Street used to be, mm. but is gone now. Down in the, in the area by that bridge. Right, right. Yeah, right. The main characters in the book are Irish. Yes. Um, you're Irish. <laughs> uh, my my uh, father's side my father's was Irish. My our grandparents actually some of the of the sayings in the book I took from my grandfather. Uh, things that he would say. One of the things I found about it was, I mean, you use kind of a dialect that uh, we we imagine that the Irish of the day spoke, and even the Irish of today in many cases uh, speak. That must have been kind of fun for you. It was. It was. That was uh, uh, to try to try to remember. It was. It was somewhat in the cadence that they spoke, and sometimes in their attitude toward the world that that I tried to to plug into. Um, Tell me about the the Irish of St. Louis at this time. What were they like? What were they doing? Were they all laborers? Were they a, a mix of uh, people of means and no means? Oh yeah, you, you had a mix of because with any you know St. Louis had been you know a frontier city only a hundred years earlier, and uh, some of the people who came, uh, the guy Campbell, who uh, 
I don't know if you've ever been to the Campbell, Campbell House. Campbell House, sure. It was Irish. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came as a fur trader and became one of the richest men in St. Louis. Uh, and Melamphy also, uh, another very, very wealthy person, came. And, and, and there wasn't, so there, one of the reasons many Irish moved here is there wasn't as much anti-Irish sentiment in St. Louis as there was in other cities across the United States. There was some, but there wasn't as much, mainly because they had city fathers who were Irish. Yeah. The, uh, the main characters, Betha and Fergal, um, I, I don't know how to describe them without giving too much away, but I'd just call, I'd call uh, him a bit of a scoundrel, a close to being a cad, <laughs> and her as being uh, a woman who, doggone it, she was very, very tough, did what she had to do, and uh, got even tougher as the book went on. Well, yeah, she, she was a difficult person, I think, for me, because trying to get part of it is telling her story as what she, and she is a difficult position because she is a woman who had been married to a very wealthy man who she's now his widow. And part of the problem is she has no idea where all the money is, how to manage any of it, and she has to depend on her brother and uh, Mr. Hawkins who has to help her. I wanted to talk about Betha because um, I was thinking in reading the book, how does a man write about a woman, you know, realistically and and really get into the head of a woman? That's to me seemed difficult. Then I went back and I read your dedication to uh, Christine Wallington Meyer, whose grit and fire in the face of adversity helped me discover the women in the book. So I I guess you had some help in that regard. I did. I did. And uh, she is... um, my wife's cousin's daughter, who was dealing with cancer last year, mm-hmm. and uh, I sent her a lot of the drafts uh-huh. and kind of got feedback from her, but but also a lot of her spirit went into the book, I think. Uh-huh. But, but it, it would be difficult for a man to really dig very, very deeply uh, into the psyche of a woman, I would think, or? It was it was a challenge. I, I you know like anything, to to do that. Yeah, I, I felt that that was the. And when I wrote the book, the book is alternating chapters of uh, Betha speaking and then Fergal, and I wrote all the Betha chapters first just huh. to see if I could do it because I thought you know if I can't do that, there's no point doing it. And so once I had that, I felt like I could do the other ones pretty easily. I, I had a caller here that wants to get into the conversation, and uh, Jim in St. Louis wants to raise an issue that I wanted to raise as well, so let's have him do it. Go ahead, Jim. Thanks very much for this guest. I appreciate it. Thank you. And mm-hmm. thank you, Don. You do an excellent job. I enjoy thank you. listening to you every day. Thank you. Um, the, um, the One of the most interesting classes I had um, in college was that I had a professor that went on and on about Jim Eads and everything he did concerning you know, even his use, his, his projected use of using locomotives for the Panama Canal instead of digging it, uh, pulling pulling um, ships across on railway cars. But that's something different. What I wanted to speak to is um, he had mentioned that there is a just a, a large amount of muck on the Illinois side of the river, and they really couldn't use these very dangerous coffer dams that had been used at that time in order to actually, you know, get out all the muck and, and build the pier that they needed, and they, they were using the, the steel um, driven down into bedrock that time. And it was, the process was different. That's what I remember from the class that I had. Also, um, 
that Jim Eads had gotten this idea, I guess, from France, um, if I remember correctly, if I have the right country, that he had suffered a nervous breakdown during the building of the bridge and that he had actually gained this idea uh, overseas. That, so, that's true. Yeah. Uh, he he uh, did have some health problems and took almost a year off and went to France to see a similar type of bridge with the, uh, what they called the caisson structure as to how they did it. And what was interesting about that is, again, he was uh, internationally famous. He, he went over there and took one look at what they were doing and said, oh, you need to do it a little differently. And, you know, he was like a national hero for pointing it out to him. And then he came back and, and used that same, that same structure to, to, to dig the, for the piers in the bridge. However, you know, it's interesting to note that when they were doing that, they, they weren't familiar with problems with the bends, that all those workers at that depth would work and work for eight, nine hours digging and then come up really quickly. And they didn't realize that they had to do it slowly and depressurize. And, and several, several men died during the course of making the bridge. That's, uh, that's also pointed out in the book on a, on a couple of different occasions. It's the same thing that deep sea divers experience when right. they come up, uh, come up uh, too quickly. Uh, another interesting part of the book. We have another caller, Charles in Chesterfield. You're on the air. Go ahead. Howdy. Uh, I was wondering if the uh, author has a sense of why River City uh, uh, goes more for multi-bridges, as in out here at Daniel Boone Bridge, which at one point had three bridges up, uh, uh, rather than multi-decked bridges like Mr. Eads uh, did. Uh, one could put the uh, top deck on now, and 25 years from now, put the bottom deck on sort of thing. Anyway, so that's one of the things that, that I've always wondered about. That's a good point. Maybe if we had yeah. Jim Eads still, he, he would probably do it that way, uh, I, I think. So, well, something you can research for your, yeah, uh, your, your, your sequel to this yeah. book. One more call. Dennis and Kirkwood has, an, I'm sure, an interesting question. Go ahead. Yes, uh, I was calling to see if um, the Irish were, uh, I guess, heavily involved in the police department uh, as they were in New York around that time. They were. They were heavily involved. Uh, police and fire department. It, it was that was how they basically started in uh, in entering the middle class. Do we have any idea how many Irish there were at, at that particular time? Uh, I I only remember the Irish and the Germans were the two big uh, immigrant groups in the 1850s, and they 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 swelled. I, I think there were like fifty, sixty thousand. Irish that came through and after the potato famine. Mm -hmm. What was the population of the, of the city at that time? Well, <laughs> that was a, some contention is uh. that Chicago people always said we counted double <laughs> at that point. But, but they were hoping that, that the population of St. Louis would be one million at the end of 1870. It didn't make it, but no. it was five, six 600,000 at that time, which was incredible. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of sad to look back on what the expectation and the hope was at that time and the fact, you know, look at the population difference, 300,000 now compared to that, and, and that those dreams were not realized. Well, that's true. I, I think that, that part of that was um, they, they lost, St. Louis lost some of that Western uh, feeling of just, you know, Bill McClellan 
read my book, and he mm-hmm. was very nice. He, he, he did, did a blurb, blurb on the yeah. back. And, uh, and we were talking about the fact that, that St. Louis should maybe not care so much. That's his point always about what the rest of the world thinks. Mm-hmm. And there is some of that in when we built the Eads Bridge, uh, New York architects came down and said, it'll never stand up. That was one of the reasons uh, they put that elephant across. <laughs> People <laughs> thought it was just going to fall over. Yeah. I'm going to bring in Chris calling from South City. It's got to be very quick, uh, Chris, but I think it lends to the point that uh, that Ken was just mentioning here. Go ahead. Yes, I uh, found it curious in doing some research that everybody, you know, just commonly refers to as these bridges, the first steel bridge spanning in Mississippi. But when you, when you do a little research, you find out that, in fact, there's more cast iron in the bridge than steel. I wonder if you're... Uh, Let, let's you're find getting, out what Ken knows about there, that. There is more cast iron at the end because actually it was they couldn't get, Carnegie could not produce enough steel of the quality they wanted. But it still had more steel than any other structure in the world at the time. Our time is winding down, but I want to uh, just point out that some of the cast of characters here will uh, will uh, resonate with our audience, I'm sure. Susan Blow is mentioned, who yes. has uh, established the first kindergarten. The Jesse James gang uh, gets no, a mention no. uh, toward the end of the book. Quantrill of Quantrill's Raider also uh, gets a mention. And uh, Victoria Woodhull, the first woman to run for president, right. keeping that theme going of how women were trying to get their uh, yes. get their get their uh, vote and get into uh, the political world. Ken McGee, thank you so much for being with us. The name of the book is The Great Hope of the World. I keep wanting to say The Great White Hope. There's another (laughs) book uh, written with that title. But uh, The uh, Great Hope of the World is the title of his book. It's a fun read and a good read. And for St. Louis, it's a particularly interesting read. Thank Thank you you so so much much for being with us. Great to see you. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Mark.